Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about liver toxic medications and cancer risk with Drs. Amy Justice and Vin Ray. Dr. Justice is the CNH Long Professor of Medicine in General Medicine and Professor of Public Health and Health Policy at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Loray is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology at Yale. Maybe I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Justice. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your research, um, and what you do? So I'm a general internist and a clinical epidemiologist, and I have spent my career using VA electronic health record data, uh, which is the uh, paperless electronic health record that the VA keeps nationally on everyone who gets care in the system to try to study important chronic diseases, including HIV and cancer, among others. Uh, And I've had the great pleasure of being able to collaborate closely with a number of wonderful investigators, Vin LeRae being one of them, uh, so that we can really leverage that data to understand how best to care for people using real-world data in real-world settings. Perfect. And so that's a very nice segue for you, Dr. LeRae, to tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do and your research. Yeah. So I'm an infectious disease physician and clinical epidemiologist uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. And my focus uh, has been on evaluating factors uh, associated with acute and chronic liver disease progression, uh, also using real world electronic uh, health record or administrative claims data. Um, I, as a Uh, infectious disease physician care primarily for patients with uh, chronic viral hepatitis or with or without HIV co-infection. And my goal has been to try to reduce the risk of adverse outcomes uh, in these populations. So, Amy, one question that I always start off with, and it's a little tangential to where this conversation will ultimately take us, but Tell me a little bit more about how this collaboration formed. I'm always interested in how people from different backgrounds, different institutions can kind of get together to make really meaningful collaborations. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you met? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, One of the things that working with the VA National Database has allowed me to do is to provide a resource to other people who want to ask clinically relevant questions and get a little guidance from me about how to do that. Uh, Vin and I met in two ways. One was I had been at uh, his alma mater, or where he is now, University of Pennsylvania, for a number of years and actually worked with one of his mentors, Brian Strom. So uh, he, he knew of me through Brian, I believe, and also through the University of Pennsylvania. And we also attended an international meeting of people who work with large cohorts called IWOD, uh, which is always held someplace in Europe in the off season so that we can get lower rates on the hotels. Uh, 
And it's a small group of people, about 100 people, who all work with uh, observational data, real-world data, to try to understand issues around health outcomes, particularly in people with HIV and hepatitis C. But the methodologic issues are relevant for other questions as well. So, so Vin, let's pick up that conversation. You had mentioned that you're an infectious disease doctor. You're particularly interested in hepatitis and HIV. So tell us a little bit more about how this kind of coincides with cancer. Yeah, well, so um, as an infectious disease physician caring for people with HIV and viral hepatitis, very early on in my career, I was observing that many of them were dying from advanced liver disease, either decompensated cirrhosis or liver cancer. And particularly in the setting of HIV, chronic hepatitis B or C really is accelerated. There's an accelerated progression of liver fibrosis to cirrhosis. uh, And then once cirrhosis uh, develops, um, there's a very rapid progression to liver cancer. What Amy and I have discovered over the past several years, specifically focusing on uh, HIV-related hepatocellular carcinoma, uh, is that HIV viremia, uh, independent of other traditional factors, is a really important determinant of uh, of primary liver cancer, uh, and. Um, we've analyzed uh, HIV viremia in many different ways to really uh, provide the first evidence that HIV viremia uh, is an important reason why this subgroup is uh, observed to have such a high rate of of liver cancer. So that's sort of the, the link. Anisha, if I can just jump in there, because I think yeah, sure. uh, it points to a larger issue, which is relevant for cancers more generally. Over time, we've come to appreciate that any number of chronic viral infections are associated with risk of cancer in the future. Uh, and HIV is just one of the more recent ones. There's a, there's a whole list of viruses that are associated with cancer. And um, this is not that well appreciated uh, by the general public. So when people talk about getting vaccinations to avoid cancer, that's what part of what we're trying to talk about. Um, and by studying HIV and its association with cancer, we also hope to gain insights into these other viruses as well. And so, um, so, so that's a, a good a good point. Um, so back to you, Vin. You know, when we talk about HIV viremia increasing the risk of of hepatocellular or liver cancers what i mean is there what's the downstream effect of that i mean is it that um we we don't currently to my knowledge have a vaccine against hiv are there ways that we can reduce viral load that we know would be beneficial in terms of preventing hepatocellular cancer Yes, yes. In fact, that's that's a key point that you bring up, that antiretroviral therapy, um, which can suppress HIV viremia, uh, can reduce the rates of primary liver cancer. Uh, and in fact, whether you have uh, HIV and hepatitis B or C co-infection or HIV alone, 
uh, durable suppression of HIV viremia can really reduce risk of primary liver cancer considerably. And so, Amy, you know, you had you had mentioned um, vaccines, and when we think about liver uh, disease, um, certainly we have a hepatitis B vaccine. Do we know that um, that actually prevents people from getting uh, a liver cancer or, or at least reduces their risk? It substantially reduces their risk. Hepatitis B infection is actually one of the worst actors in terms of risk of liver cancer. Um, the associated risk with hepatitis B is quite large. So by getting the vaccine and avoiding hepatitis B infection, one can certainly decrease one's risk of liver cancer. A liver cancer, like most other cancers, is a multi-hit phenomenon. So there's the issue of the viral exposure that we've just been talking about. There's the issue of alcohol. Uh, harmful use of alcohol can also increase risk. There's the risk of toxicity from other medications, which Vin has focused on. All of these factors can influence the total risk that an individual faces. And so we're trying to attack this issue on multiple fronts. And, and so I, I want to pick up on on what you said, Amy, about um, medications that are toxic to the liver. But just to kind of round out the discussion with regards to hepatitis, I think one of the um, important uh, contributions that have been made over the last several years is um, a medication that uh, purportedly can actually... Um, eliminate hepatitis C. Do we know that people who are treated with this medication um, can reduce their risk even if they had hepatitis C, Vin? Yes. Hepatitis C direct acting antiviral treatment can dramatically reduce the risk of liver cancer. Cure of hepatitis C really is a key factor in decreasing risk of liver disease uh, and liver cancer from chronic hepatitis. These are therapies that are uh, taken orally, once daily, for 8 to 12 weeks, and have a 95-plus percent uh, cure rate. And with cure of chronic hepatitis C, the risk of liver cancer dramatically reduces over the long term. So, Amy, this brings us to the question of, you know, if you already had hepatitis C, but that you can take a drug which cures you, you can reduce your risk of liver cancer. So with all of these other toxins that you mentioned, whether it's alcohol or other drugs that um, cause an injury to the liver, um, is are those irreversible? It sounds like these all might be, in fact, reversible if they follow the same kind of pattern as as with hepatitis C. Is that right? Well, that's a very important and interesting question. Um, as we age, uh, our bodies undergo a number of insults. Um, at some point, the, the cumulative injury from those insults on almost any organ system, and the liver is included, becomes largely irreversible. Um, so the trick is to try to catch it before that happens and reverse those behaviors or those exposures before they cross that threshold into a, a more irreversible state. Uh, we talk a lot about liver cirrhosis. 
And we used to think that even liver cirrhosis uh, was that liver cirrhosis wasn't reversible. To some extent, it can be, but obviously, the earlier we intervene uh, and stop those exposures, stop those harms, the less likely the cirrhosis will become uh, irreversible. So then, I want to pick up the conversation with you on medications that are toxic to the liver. I mean, we've all heard about alcohol, and I, I think our listeners know that um, alcohol certainly is is toxic to the liver. Maybe before we get to medications, I'll ask you the question that everybody is going to ask. Is there a safe dose of alcohol that is not toxic to the liver? Hmm. Well, I think that particularly with people with pre-existing chronic liver disease, there really may be no safe level of, uh, of alcohol. Amy and I had done a study several years back where we looked at particularly uh, the extent of uh, consumption of alcohol, non-hazardous, hazardous abuse dependence, um, according to different presences of hepatitis and HIV, and particularly for, for persons with HIV and hepatitis co-infection, uh, even those who had non-hazardous drinking, it was associated with uh, pretty substantial advanced liver fibrosis and cirrhosis. Uh, so I, I, I think, you know, there's probably uh, really in, in those instances, there really is no safe level of alcohol use. Well, that, that certainly is a sobering comment to end our first half of our segment on, uh, no pun intended. But we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about liver toxic medications and cancer risk with my guests, Dr. Amy Justice and Dr. Vin LeRae. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where a wide spectrum of advanced strategies for the diagnosis and treatment of gynecologic cancers are offered. To learn more, visit YaleCancerCenter.org slash G-Y-N-O-N-C. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine. Quitting smoking is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment, as it's been shown to positively impact response to treatments decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. All treatment components are evidence-based, and patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Amy Justice and Dr. Vin LeRae. We are learning about liver toxic medications and the risk of developing liver cancer. So, then, right before the break, we were starting to talk about some of the medications that are toxic to the liver. And we talked about the one that's the most ubiquitous, uh, which is alcohol. But talk a little bit about medications that you've found are toxic to the liver um, and how that impacts on liver cancer. Yeah. So, you know, we recognized that in this setting, particularly of uh, people with HIV, Amy and I early on had recognized that 
polypharmacy was quite common. Uh, polypharmacy is defined as using uh, five or more medications uh, outside of antiretroviral drugs. And how these multiple other medications that patients are prescribed, how they may impact on uh, multiple different organ systems, and particularly my interest in the liver, um, you know, was something that we really were focused on. I think when we embarked on studying liver cancer, uh, particularly in HIV, we were interested in, in exploring how liver toxic medications might cause uh, either acute or chronic inflammation that could exacerbate the risk of liver cancer. And when we tried to specifically consider different uh, liver toxic drugs, the classifications that really existed were only based on case studies and case reports. And in fact, the, the National Institutes of Health has a liver tox website that assembles all of the drugs with known hepatotoxic either reports uh, or, or case series. But no one has ever tried to group those drugs based on the likelihood of developing uh, liver injury or for that for that matter, liver cancer, uh, based on real-world data outside of just reports. And so, you know, what, what uh, Amy and I wanted to do was to utilize these existing categorizations of hepatotoxic potential based on reports and actually create uh, real-world uh, cohorts of new initiators of these drugs from the standpoint of trying to determine which had high versus low rates of liver injury. You see, when you're using case reports, you're ignoring the, the denominator data of, of sort of the, the, the world of people who, who are actually using these drugs. They're merely cases. Uh, but if you have many users, but just very few uh, cases, the rates of those uh, liver injury events is actually low. So what Amy and I did was to identify 195 of the most hepatotoxic drugs uh, based on those that had at least four or more reports of liver injury in the medical literature going back from the 1950s. And we used the national VA data to create new user cohorts of each of these 195 drugs. And we followed over a year's time the rate of liver injury, which we classified as severe based on uh, you know, serious liver dysfunction. Uh, and, and using that approach, we were able to uh, create a new hierarchy or, or tiers of uh, drugs that can cause liver injury. And what we found was 39 of those drugs out of the 195 were, uh, had, had rates that were fairly high uh, for liver injury. And interestingly, the majority of the, almost half of those drugs were antimicrobial drugs. So antibiotics, antivirals, antifungals. Um, and our approach to using these uh, from a, a real-world data standpoint was now that we have a group of drugs that we know 
uh, are associated with higher rates of liver injury, we can now explore those in, in terms of their risk of developing liver cancer. Uh, and these might be drugs that uh, could be evaluated uh, for, for safety signals in many different integrated delivery systems like the VA. You could create um, electronic alerts uh, to warn uh, healthcare providers to monitor patients more closely on these drugs. And I think future studies to look at combinations of these drugs and their risk of liver injury will also be valuable. So, Amy, let me uh, ask you a question. I mean, you just, um, that that explanation by Vin was certainly enlightening, but a lot of people, um, you know, take antibiotics. They might have, you know, a, a touch of pneumonia or a urinary tract infection, and they, they take their week of antibiotics, and their doctors always tell them, make sure you finish the whole week because we don't want resistance dr- to occur. Um, did you find a dose response? Like if you take, you know, a course of antibiotics once in your lifetime, does that really increase your risk of liver injury and liver cancer over that lifetime? Or is it more the people who are taking antibiotics on a regular basis that really uh, increases the risk? Well, certainly regular exposure would be the bigger concern. But in terms of trying to conduct this research in a fairly uh, clear way, we needed to start with people who had not been exposed and then look at initial exposure, since that's one of the highest risk periods for injury, right? People who have very serious injury are going to stop the medication. Now that we have identified which ones have the most signal, We want to go on and look at, okay, if people actually do have chronic exposure and a more low-level signal for injury, do we see cumulative effects? So you make an excellent point, Anish, but the initial study really had to look at people who had not been previously exposed and then look at acute exposure. Yeah. And so then you mentioned that the majority of these 39 um, top offenders uh, were in the antimicrobial kind of spectrum. One of the drugs that a lot of people know about, use a lot, um, and we all kind of think about in terms of liver injury is acetaminophen, plain old Tylenol. Did you find that that um, ranked among the highest or or was that in the rest of the uh, the population of drugs that really was not as toxic as you might have thought to begin with? Well, acetaminophen really causes its toxicity in a dose-dependent fashion. So uh, as long as the doses of acetaminophen are not at high, uh, at high doses, then the, the risk is generally low. Um, I would say that um, for those with pre-existing chronic liver disease, lower doses of acetaminophen is, uh, is more advantageous uh, because with compromised livers, the risk of liver injury uh, is much higher. And and Vin raises a good point, Amy, which is, you know, and you had mentioned it before as well, is that there is this kind of more than one hit to, to your liver. And so when you did this study and you were looking at people who had initiated a potentially hepatotoxic drug, 
did you kind of stratify these patients by other things that might put them at risk, whether that was alcohol use or underlying fatty liver or even hepatitis? So the answer to that is yes. Um, And in fact, one of the things that seems to be relevant for any number of adverse outcomes is simply how many medications are you on? Um, Even after you adjust for how sick someone is physiologically, you know, how much organ system injury do they appear to have based on laboratory data and other clinical evaluations? Simply counting up how many chronic medications they are on, especially when they get beyond five or 10, uh, has a very strong association with any number of adverse health outcomes. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why Vin was talking about polypharmacy a few minutes ago. It's very important to interpret exposures in the context of how susceptible to injury are you at that moment. And if you're already on a lot of medications and already have evidence of liver injury, you are highly susceptible to injury from another exposure. Yeah, yeah. but I think, Anish, what you, you bring up a good, a good question. For this initial analysis, we chose to specifically exclude individuals with either viral hepatitis or other non-viral chronic liver diseases. And even amongst those who did not have diagnosed chronic liver disease, we looked in the year prior to their initiation of the drug to see if they had any evidence of uh, any liver aminotransferase uh, abnormalities, any, any, any evidence of, of, of liver inflammation and excluded those individuals. So the the population that we studied, at least at the outset, was those who did not have pre-existing liver disease, either diagnosed or for that matter, non-diagnosed. And and it was really when we presented these results at uh, to the FDA's Division of Hepatology uh, that they really advocated that we go the extra mile to really exclude individuals who may have as yet undiagnosed liver disease uh, to, to ensure that this was an indiv- a group that wasn't necessarily at higher risk, such as Amy had mentioned, those with pre-existing liver disease. And, and so, I mean, all of this work is, is incredibly interesting, but it begs the question, and then what? So, you know, people who are on five or more medications certainly are at increased risk, but presumably they're on those medications because they're needed. If they're not needed, then the obvious answer to the what happens next is you get rid of the medications that you don't need. But for the people who really do need, you know, their antihypertensive medication and maybe their uh, their insulin and and uh their statin and whatever else, and they're they're on say five medications that they they truly do need, and we know that polypharmacy would put you at increased risk of liver disease. What should physicians and patients do, Amy? Like, what's the answer? Well, so Anish, it's you know, in the best of all possible worlds, there would be one doctor who's really helping to manage the total picture for the patient. Uh, in the room. Uh, But the reality of our healthcare system is that that is often not the case. People see a number of different specialists, uh, and each of those specialists looks at the patient and their list of medications only with a view to the particular organ system that they're treating. Uh, Further, the guidelines for how we recommend managing people with various diseases in our country have been developed with a similar um, narrow focus. 
As a result, people end up being on a lot of medications, sometimes without each of the physicians being totally aware of all the other medications that the person is on. And that's part of the reason we've gotten into this quandary. So believe it or not, the first step really is a total view of the medication list and decisions about what medications are truly indicated for this person and which ones are not. Dr. Amy Justice is the CNH Long Professor of Medicine and General Medicine and Professor of Public Health and Health Policy at the Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Vin LoRay is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.